How you doing? Good, good. Okay, how's the reception? Okay. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Exhibit C first, world oil demand, supply demand. The latest supply constraints, the surplus capacity rather than 2.8 will go up to 3.5 or 3.7 or something like that. The demand is interesting. If you look at the chart for 23 versus 22, demand's supposed to go up by a million and a half barrels a day. And if you look at China, 700 of that or half is from China. The problem with China seems to be because almost all commodities are on a downward trend. Oil, LNG, iron ore, copper, petrol. That the China was in a decline in in need for commodities before COVID. And <clears throat> I think that the expectation that after they lifted their COVID lockdown, China demand would rebound. Certainly it, 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 it rebounded some, but what we lost track of was as the economy matured, as they put less resources into infrastructure, building office buildings and apartment buildings and whatnot, it just wasn't going to require as much commodities. It's the second largest economy. The good news is that unlike Europe, the United States, to a certain extent Japan, there's, there, there's very low inflation in China. And their interest rates have been reasonably high. So they have room, and they acted yesterday to reduce interest rates. And that possibly will support, you know, some more growth. But will it be the growth that helps commodities, or will it be, you know, more consumer spending? And you'd have to conclude, based on what we know now, there will be more consumer spending and less growth in commodities use now. People say, well, India's population is the same as China, both about a billion three. It will take up the slack. But let's look at the table. First of all, India uses only a third of the oil that China does, 5 million barrels a day versus 15 million barrels a day. And they're only supposed to go up 200,000 barrels. So, you know, it's true. Will, Will India industrialize? Will that take? you know, take part of the place of China. But replacing China in terms of the kind of industrial expansion they've gone through is not likely to happen. Hopefully, the OPEC plus group, Saudi Arabia, and the other OPEC countries, Russia, can maintain supply constraint. And in the latest meeting, they said they're not only cutting their production, 
This is a million seven, not the extra million barrels a day, which the Saudi oil minister calls a lollipop to the rest of OPEC for July. But the million seven, they've confirmed that will be a reduction not only for the remainder of 23 for 24. What does all this mean? I think a reasonable bet, a mid-probability bet, would be something like current oil prices, maybe a little lower. But this expectation that the Ukraine war and supply constraints and whatnot would take oil to $100, the people who held that, you know, kind of retreated from that view. Natural gas on Exhibit B, a bit, a bit of the same. The disappointing thing in natural gas is that that the LNG export, which is where most of the growth has been, will definitely double in the next six or seven years from, say, around 13 Bs a day to 26 or 27 Bs. There's no question. Those projects are getting built. Those projects have contracts vacuum. The financing's been arranged and whatnot. But my goodness, does it take a long time. So that in, in the period from this year at 13 and a half to, say, 27 at 26, if you stretch out the years, it only comes to about two Bs a day per year. And here, because Golden Path is slow, that's 70% gutter. And, you know, they may just not want to bring it on right now. You know, have only a B picked up for 24 and a B and a half for 25. And even those numbers look a little suspect. So it's happening, but it's taking longer. The good news is if you if you look across the power line, which has been running in the 31, 32 Bs a day, and which has been flat, like most of the rest of the gas usage, there's definitely a pickup there. It's up two Bs this year easily. And the next time uh, revise these numbers, definitely going to take 24 and 25 up. What is happening here is a lot of coal retirement supposedly replaced by wind and solar and the wind and solar is just and solar is just slower you know so there's there's more gas demand for power which is good this surplus of 2.4 based on these 23 numbers that's an impossibly high number i mean in in 2020 the surplus was a billion two and drove gas prices average for the year all the way to 220 so the gas market if you look at the bottom comes back to $4.25. That's the impact of, of those LNG projects. But the problem here is supply. If you look at production, dry gas production, from 21 to 22, went up by four Bs a day. And then in 23, uh, and it's flattened out now, went up another five Bs or four and a half Bs. That's a combination of associated gas from the Permian uh, the Haynesville, interestingly enough, the Marcellus is flat as a board. And you can see up at the top, the Marcellus is our largest gas base in about a third of our production. And there, I think they're just pipeline constrained. The Haynesville definitely is dropping rigs. Associated gas, which is that gas from the Permian, will flatten out. And hopefully things will be get better in gear. Just based on these numbers, the surplus goes from 24 in 23, down to under half a B a day in 24. So that will be a substantial improvement. Hopefully, gas prices will get better. 
On the cash flow statement for our U.S. government, there's been a lot of publicity recently with the debt ceiling and whatnot. There was a good article in the paper this morning about how Kevin McCarthy has brought the dozen or so Freedom Caucus members who, you know, were not willing to proceed on any litigation back. They've gotten a promise from the head of the Appropriations Committee. They do 12 separate bills that the non-defense spending will not go back to 22 levels, but below 22 levels. I think this is all constructive. The Democrats in the Senate who have the ability to, I mean, the, the House passes appropriation bills, but the Democrats in the Senate can certainly slow it up or try to not have a full set of appropriation bills make it through. Then the government gets so it's going to lose the ability to spend money. You get these resolutions to keep spending at flat levels. I'm sure that's what the Democrats in the Senate are looking for. If the appropriation bills get passed, and that trillion four of spending away from defense and Social Security, Medicare, and whatnot, and interest, if that can get, oh, just halfway back to the $900 billion, we would be in much, much better shape. What we have to do is get that deficit down so that the debt held by the public doesn't go beyond 100% of GNP. You can see for 23 off this forecast, $26.2 trillion of GNP. 25.7 of debt held by the public. Hopefully this effort by House Republicans will bear fruit. In terms of impact on oil pricing, gas pricing, the opportunity here is on page 12, which is the three gas companies. And these companies are all good companies, Antero, EQT, and Chesapeake. They are trading as though gas is $3. And in fact, gas for the second half of this year, based on futures, is supposed to be around $3. If you believe that this is a low point in gas, that the combination of increased power demand and, and kind of as these LNG projects get built, that gas might trade back in $4 range. Uh, these companies, as you can see in the, about two-thirds down the page, at a $3 price are trading at a 12% for cash yield. They've all gotten their debt in much better shape. And the question is when. Given the fact that things can move to the right, you might, if you're buying one or all three of these companies and you're, you wanted to get a position, you might get half now and half going into the fall when it becomes a little clearer exactly how these stock prices are going to react to commodities. One of the problems that happens is you get into August and September when you got too much gas in storage. If in the end of the injection season, which runs through November, if there's just no storage, you get some crazy spot low gas prices. I mean, you see, you could see gas trading for a dollar or something, and that might have an impact on these prices. So chances are these things don't run away from you, but this is an opportunity. With that, I'm just going to pause and see if Mike or Jason want to add anything or supplement anything. Uh, the one comment or question that I have on gas is obviously last year we saw huge LNG exports sort of, and a lot of that happened in the summer. So it caused a spike in prices. Do we think that maybe some of that capacity fill is going to happen at what would typically be the low point 
in the kind of the end of the summer. I think what happened last summer, if we go back to Exhibit B, the average gas price was $6. That was definitely a function of Europe being cut off from Russian gas. LNG prices got as high as $30 or $40. Power prices go up and down with LNG prices. And there was an expectation that you couldn't get Europe through the winter without having those very high prices. That turned out to be wrong. Europe made it through the winter. You can argue that the winter was warmer. The Europeans were quite effective at putting in LNG receiving terminals, loading terminals. In Germany, they actually built an LNG receiving terminal, online terminal in like under 12 months. Really remarkable. LNG <clears throat> has been going down recently. A week or two ago, it got as low as seven, seven and a half dollars. It's now rebounded to eight, eight and a half. But it doesn't look as though there's going to be that kind of spike in LNG prices. We do not have a worldwide gas market like we have a worldwide oil market. But as more LNG capacity gets installed, you know, uh, LNG International and, and U.S. natural gas will line up more. No one predicted that. In the early part of 23, having seen four Bs a day of increased gas production in 22 versus 21, that you'd see another five. I mean, the producers just were just brought on so much production that it just, you know, swamped demand. Now it's flattened out, but it has to stay flat. And then you have to have that power demand go up by two Bs a day and have these LNG facilities get completed. Those are, those, are, <laughs> those are two ifs. In terms of other commodities, oil is, is, looks okay, but very dependent on, on <clears throat> production restraint by the, by the companies in OPEC that have extra capacity, which is Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Russia, says that they're going to use production restraint, but they never do. And you would think that Russian oil would be held back by sanctions, but as a practical matter, they figured out how to get around the sanctions, and Russian oil is flowing to India, China, other places, including the Middle East. Someplace like Saudi, like Saudi Arabia has big refining capacity, They'll bring the Russian oil in a ship owned by Russians, so it, they completely evade the sanctions. They'll bring it to Saudi Arabia. It'll get refined, and then the products get taken back to Europe. So the resilience of the oil business and, and Russia's ability to, to be resilient were way underestimated. So now, you know, oil oil's having trouble holding into the 70s for WTI and Absent some other macro, that's probably what we're going to live with. Natural gas, you know, it, it will be better next year. But, you know, could next year slip by six or nine months? Absolutely. With that, we've blown through an unusually, well, we've blown through half our phone call with oil, gas, and macro stuff. I'd like to switch pretty promptly to talk about not just AI and NVIDIA, but AI and Taiwan Semiconductor, AI and, and a company that I'll add 
this week to one of these pages, ASML, which is the company that makes the lithograph equipment that makes these high-performance chips possible. I think we'll lead off with Jason. Jason's very familiar with the work Mike's been doing on NVIDIA, which is on page three. And I'm going to paraphrase what I think Mike's been doing. You'll see that for the most recent 12 months, NVIDIA's free cash flow is just under $4 billion. I think what Mike's doing is taking the sales forecast that the CEO gave and announcing the first quarter results and expecting that that will go on for 12 or 18 months. So that $4 billion of free cash flow, since this is very high margin business, will turn out to, you know, that, that number might turn out to be 15 or $20 billion. Am I overstating the case, Mike? No, that's that's about right. I mean, it'll take a couple quarters to get to that twenty billion run rate, but and it's obviously based on quite a few assumptions. But these data center products are higher margin, so we're expecting the cash flow that comes down to the bottom line is going to be pretty substantial. Jason, do you think Mike's just get taken an optimism pill or something, or what? What do you think of this analysis? You can certainly understand why he comes to those conclusions. I'm worried that he is taking that pill, <laughs> but um, he ha- he definitely has the the data to back it up. Um, it's, well, it's an assumption, right? It's, and yes, th- that's the challenge, right? Is n- nobody really knows how how deep is the demand for businesses building their own AI infrastructure, right? You have companies like Salesforce that are basically saying that, well, you can't run your AI data through open AI because they're just going to scrape it and use it for their models. And nobody wants that. Everybody wants their data to be proprietary. So Salesforce is going to come up with a solution for their customers. But a lot of corporations are going to say, you know, if this is core to our business and our competitive advantage, then maybe Salesforce shouldn't have it either. And maybe it should be completely in-house. And in that case, they're either buying NVIDIA hardware and housing it in their own data center, or they're running it in one of the approved NVIDIA clouds, Oracle, Google, or Microsoft. Jason, if you were, if you were plotting this for, let's, let's pick a company. Let's, let's, a company we've discussed before, BioNTech, working on their products, very technical company. In fact, I think they've acquired a, a firm in the UK they were using that is kind of a AI specialist. If you're biotech, would you worry about putting all that data that you're trying to figure out how to make cancer vaccines from? Would you worry about putting that in the cloud? Would you rather have your own server or how, how would you look at it? I think if you asked me last year, they would not be worried about putting their data in the cloud. I, th- I think the Everyone's gotten past that worry a number of years ago, but it's resurfaced because these language models have been shown and proven that they can leak your data out unintentionally. You can't really, you can't really control or predict the responses that it provides, and it, it's, it's kind of easy to circumvent the, the guardrails that these language models are putting in place to ensure that you get the proper responses. So I, I think until those until that challenge gets solved, there's definitely going to be a worry about putting your data in, in one of these language models that is hosted on the cloud. It took, it took a number of years before the big firms were comfortable 
putting their data in Amazon or, you know, out, out there in Salesforce. And, and I, I think that same scenario is going to play out here. This is just, it's very new. It's, it's not even a, you know, six months old. So they, they've got a lot to figure out on how to protect data. And then once they do protect that data, they have, there's a, a lot of convincing that needs to be done to, the, to their customers that they won't leak their data out. And to follow up on that, there's two distinct clouds here. There's cloud-like using chat GPT APIs within a particular product. And then there's running your own proprietary instance of NVIDIA inside a cloud. Jason, maybe you want to talk through that distinction because one exposes your data and the other one doesn't. And I think that's sort of easy to confuse. Right. The, the, the former example is the same as you and I going to OpenAI's website and typing into their ChatGPT webpage. The API calls are, are the same thing. They're they're going to, in this case, Azure. Yeah, so Microsoft's hosting all of all of that. They're first party to your data that you're sending in. It's using that for training, further training the algorithm in the future, and that's that's the biggest fear of of leaking data. The second case is is you you host your own version of all of this technology, but that is hosted in the cloud. The servers don't exist on you know in your office building if you still have one and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you essentially control the servers out in the cloud. You, you don't own them, but they're, you know, they're leased to you for a, a number of years. So in that case, it's much more safe, but it, it's more difficult to, to come up with that solution. So the first, the first solutions that are out there, since this is so new are, are more of the, just plug it into OpenAI's architecture that they built. But, the, but that second solution is, is coming. And I would argue that that second solution is the long tail of NVIDIA's opportunity that we just don't know how big it is. Right. And, and NVIDIA is selling, you know, they're selling the whole hardware stack ready to go that you can buy and they'll come and set it up, you know, in, in, your, in your data center. And that brings up another point that we haven't really talked about is, is kind of the success that NVIDIA is having with their CPUs. I don't have the performance numbers off the top of my head, but all of the, the servers they've been selling until recently are a combination of uh, an NVIDIA GPU with an Intel CPU. So their most popular server, I believe, is a Dell server, and, and that's the configuration. They've benchmarked that against their new GPU in-house CPU combination, and, and they're getting much, much better performance out of that. How much would... Taiwan semiconductors free cash flow goes up if let's say within some number of quarters Nvidia goes from four or five billion of free cash flow to twenty billion of free cash flow. Should we assume that Taiwan semiconductor, which in the last twelve months had about ten billion of free cash flow, will go to twenty billion of free cash flow? since they're making all that NVIDIA equipment? I, I would guess the probably three to five billion. Even well, if you described, okay, gross, gross margin on the NVIDIA products. And just for clarity, there's like 20,000 parts in a H100. But if you assume the most expensive part is the chip, it's maybe, you know, maybe you could say 20% of that increase in revenue. 
That would probably be an overestimate, but probably be fair. All right. So it won't have the same upward trajectory. Taiwan Semiconductor won't. I'll add ASML, I guess, to this page. I guess it will fit over the weekend. But I was just scanning through the ASML data. I mean, their backlog is like $40 billion. And I think they do about 5 or $6 billion of sales a quarter. Does this mean that their backlog will go out to up by $20 billion or something, just trying to provide enough of their equipment to TSMI, but, but also to other people who want to try to catch up in, in making high-end GPUs rather than CPUs so that they need the ASML equipment? I wouldn't say twenty billion. Again, it's this is a, a a leading input. So Taiwan Semiconductor's already spent that money to buy the lithography machines, but certainly Intel is trying to catch up, and they're pre-ordering a lot of the 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 machines that aren't even ready to be delivered yet. So the the next generation that's coming, and they're very expensive. I I believe three hundred and fifty million each um, U.S. dollars. So. The big the big sales uplift we're seeing in ASML is is really due to China. They they are trying to purchase as many of the last generation the the instead of extreme ultraviolet light, it's deep ultraviolet light. Um, they're they're trying to purchase as many of those as they can. So ASML is they've been production constrained for years, and they they remain that way. And they're trying to ramp production so they can satisfy China's demand. Right. In the last couple of minutes left, just to show that we're not totally focused on AI and, and GPUs, there's a, two new companies added this last weekend. On page eight, the Walmart page added CarMax, which is something uh, I've owned for a long time, and it's been a very successful stock. It's kind of lost its way at a competitor, Carvana, and uh, CarMax has used cars in uh, in uh, you know, 120 locations or so, big boxes, big stores, decided they had to compete with Carvana doing online. And they didn't have a terribly good year last year. And then their first quarter was was kind of disappointing. But it's a very well-run business. They reduced their shares. Uh, I think, I forget how long Reef owned it family-wide, but I mean, we're up four or five times on our money. So it's on page eight. The other interesting company is a company that I heard about from Mike and Jason, oh, at least some number of months ago. It's on page 16 on the McDonald's, Starbucks, Chipotle page. It's called Celsius, and it does a sports drink. And the stock is run a lot, but I value the stock here at $75. Why $75? Because... They made a deal last year with Pepsi for Pepsi to take over a lot of their distribution. And as part of the deal, Pepsi invested $550 million in a preferred convertible at 75 So no matter where Celsius stock goes, I'm going to continue to hold it at 75 under the theory that this is a very volatile area. And if you could buy it somewhere near the conversion price that Pepsi negotiated, that that would be a, a good position to be in. Mike and Jason will go over a couple of minutes while I explain 
how they got interested in Celsius. And I think they're not quite as low as 75, but pretty close. And I think the stock is traded as high as 130 or 140. So, Mike, over to you for how you became interested in Celsius. Well, I think it's Peter Lynch that talked about investing in the things that you use or the things that you see. And I think Jason did a really good job with this one because he's been following it for a while. And finally, we got comfortable enough with it. But go ahead, go ahead and tell the story, Jason. Right. I've been following it since 2020. So kind of fortuitous being in San Diego, we just entered a COVID lockdown, but my gym is entirely outdoors and they've got a lot of new clients. And I started noticing a lot of the younger people are drinking this energy drink while at the gym. And then taking notice around town, a, a whole lot of people are starting to drink it. And, and really three, three things stood out as I was starting to notice this trend. It quickly became very popular. A lot of women were drinking it, maybe even more so than men. And older, older people were drinking it as well. So it wasn't just you know the teenagers and 20-year-olds, kind of like the market uh, Red Bull and Monster go after. So the worry was it was a fad and, and it'll go away. So we, we tracked it for several years. It steadily gained traction. And the big thing to us is, is the, the addressable market's going to be much larger. If the, their demographic is really targeted at around the 30-year-old and their core customer is between 20 and 40, whereas Red Bull and Monster, that the people age out of that product at about, I, th- I think it's the early 30s. And, and obviously they're, they're addressing half of the population that Monster and Red Bull do not address. So the, the size of that market is, is maybe three times the size of those other drinks. And that's kind of what got us really excited. And we're re- really waiting for them to reach a tipping point in the energy drink as, as we did research on it. You know, Monster and Red Bull dominate the market. They each have about 37 to 39% market share. No one else had really breached, I believe it was 5% of the market share. So, so it was a duopoly and then there's a lot of has-beens. So we were, we were waiting for Celsius to, to do that. And, and they did that last year. And really a, a catalyst was, besides the, the Pepsi distribution agreement you spoke to, they're the number two energy drink on, on Amazon. So they outsell Red Bull on Amazon. Um, and we're kind of using Amazon sales as a proxy of how popular we believe it can become in convenience stores now that they have national distribution. Great. Well, we're three or four minutes over. We promised to talk some more about Celsius next week. You know, Carvana blew up and has had a recent recovery, just, I think, a lot of short covering. But I do believe the used car business done in an organized way, an efficient way, is, is a good business to be in. It's been a good business in the past. I think the thing to do is to wait a couple more quarters of performance and see how they do. You know, and then maybe we have something that can really uh, perform well. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy and stay well, and uh, we'll be in touch next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, 
Neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.